I think sometimes the mistake that journalists make is thinking that because they can write non-fiction that they will be able to write fiction. I think that's like thinking I can play the piano so therefore I'll be able to play the cello. Some of the tools that you have in being able to play the piano are going to help you if you're learning a new instrument, but it's still a new instrument. That's the unmistakable voice of Lee Sales. Anyone who's followed her career will be unsurprised to hear that she can play both the piano and the cello, which somewhat undercuts her metaphor there. But the broader point still stands. What do you do next when you've left your job as the host of the ABC's flagship nightly current affairs show? What are the instruments at your disposal for working out the next chapter of your career? For Lee, it's always been about storytelling, no matter the form. From her childhood love of reading, to her long career as one of the country's most celebrated journalists, to her secret desire to write a novel. In her new book, Storytellers, Lee Sales takes her personal passion and guiding curiosity about the business of telling stories and turns it into a series of conversations with a wide range of the country's best journalists talking about how they do it. From Schwartz Media, I'm Michael Williams with Read This, a show about the books we love and the stories behind them. Ahead of chatting to you today, I was rereading your wonderful 2009 essay on doubt. Um, And that essay opens with you reflecting on your childhood and on the kind of elements that I think arguably went on to make you the journalist that you are today. Um, Can you tell us a bit about your nan, your mum's mum? So my mum's mum lived with us when I was growing up and uh, she was a fantastic woman. And I think the lovely dynamic that you have with an adult who's not your parents is so fantastic. So I was very close to her. We shared a room until I was about 13. And so it's like that trusted older adult figure, but who doesn't, I guess, discipline you in the same way that your parents do. And so you don't have that kind of tension in the relationship. And so she and my mother would always buy the Woman's Weekly and New Idea and Woman's Day and all of those kind of things. And they'd always be sitting around in, in the house. And I used to love reading them. And I what I particularly used to love was the advice columns and reading about other people's lives and problems and and reading what advice they were given. Um, And my grandmother, I I used to remember, she always used to have a thing against sticky beaks. Um, She used to be, don't be a sticky beak, you know, because it was the era, of course, where there was one phone in the house and it was in the kitchen, so you could never have a private conversation. So I would always be like, well, what was that about? What did someone say? Don't you be a sticky beak. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, being a journalist allows you to be a professional sticky beak. Even then, did you know that you were at heart a sticky beak? You had to hide that from your grandmother? Yeah, I thought I was a sticky beak. Um, I definitely was always interested in people and I was curious about things and curious about the world. And I remember I'd go to bed and they'd be listening. They'd watch Prisoner, which was on <laughs> after I went to bed. I wasn't allowed to watch it, but I used to be listening from my room. So, yeah, I definitely was always a sticky beak. I like advice columns as a way to kind of feed that hunger, to kind of see on the page people kind of engaging with media to share their deepest, darkest secrets. There's something in that that uh, makes a lot of sense that you would like that. Yeah, and I think, um, I guess when you, for all of us, when you're a child and you don't really realise this as a child, but your world and how you think the world works is based on what is in your immediate vicinity. So if, like me, you're having 
a suburban upbringing with a house where, you know, your mum and dad are there, you've got a sibling, your grandmother lives with you. Like I didn't even really realise until my teens that that was unusual that my grandmother lived with us. So everything that's in your normal life seems normal. Um, But when you, say, read advice columns and things like that, you realise, oh, wow, there's all this whole world of other interesting and strange things that happen out there. And so that, that was fun. Do you remember when you first had a sense of vocation? Because I always knew I was a book nerd and it was going to be books one way or the other, but I couldn't, it took me a long time to understand how that might be a job, how that might be something that you do. Um, And I imagine recognising an innate sense of curiosity and tendency to argue back to your parents and being a sticky beak were all qualities you identified, but understanding how to turn them into a job must have been a different thing. Oh, totally. I, like you, I also knew that I was a book nerd and because I just never had my nose out of a book and I used to love writing and I was always writing stories and reading them to my friends and so on. And I, I have a very distinct memory of when I was in grade three, did this piece of creative writing and my teacher, Mrs. Cantoriti, said, that's so good, you should go and read it to the grade fours, which I did. And then when I came back, they were doing an activity where you had to draw a picture of what you'd like to be when you grew up. And I drew someone sitting at a desk writing. And so really, even today, you know, one of my great dreams would be to write a novel because in my own head, even though I've written, you know, Storytellers is my fifth book, I feel like, yeah, but it's not a real book, is it? Because a novel is a real book. And so I I still would love to have a go at writing a novel. And so in my head, I think that that's what I thought I wanted to do. But where I grew up, I mean, I didn't know anyone who was a journalist or a writer or an artist or a musician. Like those, those were hobbies. Those weren't things that you did for a job. And so I was looking for okay, I like words, I like writing, I like talking to people, I like communication. What is a job that enables you to do those things? And so journalism seemed like, okay, well, that's that's a job where you actually go somewhere and you get paid and there's a reliable income. But, you know, like all kids, I'd gone through, oh, I should be a cruise director, you know, when I was watching <laughs> Love Boat. Or, I should be a vet when I was watching a country practice. But, yeah, I, I kind of like you, I knew it would be something words-based. I could see you as a cruise director. I think you could, I mean, you could be cruise director and occasionally move over to the grand piano and, you know, just kind of master of ceremonies at all times. It's, you know, it's funny because it's interesting, isn't it, that of all of the jobs on Love Boat that I seized on the one that probably of all those people's jobs I would have been the best suited to, which was (laughs) dealing with people front of house. You know, I didn't want to desire to be the captain. I didn't desire to be Isaac on the bar. I thought Julie's gig was the gig. One of the things that's so lovely about storytellers is that the structure of it is this series of conversations that you have with this cross-section of people working in this space. And so it becomes this rolling dialogue between you and all these other people. And one of the things that strikes me often talking to writers is how solitary a pursuit it is and how hard it is to remember that you have peers and colleagues How important is that kind of network of other people doing it and how enjoyable was the process of going to them all for the book? Oh, I loved it. I was looking for people with a really diverse range of experience in in journalism, Um, right from tabloid journalists to serious investigative reporters, 
feature writers, camera operators, and people from all sorts of different cultural backgrounds. And so I was deliberately trying to think, okay, not everyone loves tabloid journalism, but who in this country is really good at tabloid journalism or who is really good at commercial television journalism and so forth. And so luckily for me, everyone that I approached said yes, which was just so great. And then the process of having the conversations was fascinating, partly because it's reassuring. So for example, I interviewed Laurie Oakes, who was a terrific interviewer, political interviewer, an amazing journalist. And when Laurie talked through how he prepares for a political interview, I felt relieved because I was like, oh, thank God, that's how I've been doing it all this time. Great. (laughs) That must be good. That must be an okay way to do it. Um, But then the other thing that was amazing was just seeing how many different ways to skin a cat there are and all the different approaches people take. So many people said they think about the audience all the time and they think about who they're broadcasting to or writing to. And then one person, Nikki Sava, who is a columnist with nine newspapers and I think a terrific political columnist, she said, oh, I never think about the audience. I just think about what I'm interested in and and, I, and then I write about what I'm interested in. And I, I thought, geez, isn't that fascinating because she – her columns are so interesting. They're not in any way insular. They don't feel like she's self-focused. They feel really outwardly focused. But she clearly starts from a position of thinking, what's caught my attention in politics this week? And if it's caught my attention, it'll probably catch other people's attention too. She's also a fascinating example because I do think she lets emotion be part of how she writes opinion and commentary. You know, Nikki Savas' anger is a wonder to behold on the page. And <laughs> part of why you read her is because you know that if she assesses a politician and finds them lacking or insincere or whatever, she's going to train both barrels at them. And it's that interesting idea that... Um, journalistic impartiality doesn't mean not having a an emotional response to things. 100%. I think, you know, it, it was really interesting with someone like Nikki as well, and this is why diversity in newsrooms is important and not just cultural diversity, economic diversity as well. Nikki was talking about her family were Greek. When she started in the press gallery in the 1970s, her, she was one of the very few women and her nickname was Ethniki. That's what everyone called her. Um, she said t- to this day, she's never forgotten that she grew up in a working class household where her parents were illiterate factory workers. They couldn't speak English. Um, and that, of course, would inform Nikki Savas' work because she's got more, she's got that lived experience of growing up in that environment, being treated in that way um, and being different in a group of people. One of the other stories that really stuck with me is Pamela Williams, who's a very decorated um, journalist at the Australian Financial Review. And at the end of her interview, she talks about how she came into journalism. And it was that she'd had a daughter in her 20s and her daughter had cancer and she had a long illness and then her daughter died when she was nine. And Pam was just absolutely on the bones of her ass. She was on a single mother's pension. She joined this group of sceptics because she was so angry at faith healers and people like this kind of thing and the peddling of misinformation around um, childhood cancer and so forth. And she ended up kind of conning her way into writing a story for a magazine and she lied and told them she was a freelance journalist. And then that got published and then she got another one. Then she kind of worked away in it. For years, she never told anyone what her actual backstory was. And she makes the point that journalism has to have paths in it for people that come into it from weird and unusual backgrounds because they bring that experience then into their reporting. You don't bring it in in terms of first-person accounts, but it just might make you a bit more attuned to certain stories. 
So, for example, if you have a disability yourself or you care for somebody with a disability, you have more experience in that sector. Of course, you're going to see more stories in that than somebody who doesn't have that experience at all. And so that's why, you know, when we to bring it back to storytelling, we're going to get a richer array of stories that appeal to more people if the people searching for those stories themselves come from a diverse array of backgrounds. We'll be right back. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, The Saturday Paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Coming to the world of journalism from a bookish bent, Lee quickly came to the somewhat annoying realisation that, while her vocation was all about storytelling, in real life, the stories often didn't unfold in the way she wished. In my first book, Detainee 002, which was about the case of David Hicks, um, the Australian who was held in the terrorist prison in Guantanamo Bay, I went to interview Dennis Richardson, who was then the head of ASIO, the Director General of ASIO. And in my mind, I wanted the chapter to start with the day that Dennis Richardson got the phone call to go, there's an Australian who's been picked up in Afghanistan. Um, Because it was was dramatic, right? It was the immediate aftermath of 9-11. People forget now because it was so long ago, but everyone was terrified. We thought another terrorist attack was imminent. And it was this shocking thing that this Australian, this white Australian young man had been picked up in Afghanistan at this Al-Qaeda training camp. And so I wanted to be able to write this chapter like, you know, Dennis Richardson was sitting at his desk, the phone rang, he picked it up. It was General Smith of the US CENTCOM and he said, you know, I wanted that. And when I spoke to Dennis, I said, where were you when you got the call? He's like, oh, geez, I can't remember. And I'm like, oh, Dennis, you must remember. This is a big (laughs) thing. An Australian picked up a gun to my bay. Dennis is like, you've got to remember in this moment, there were that many phone calls and that many pieces of intelligence. I honestly, I know I got a call about it, but I just can't tell you, was I in my car? Was I at home? Was I at my desk? And I was just like desperate, like, oh God, you've got to remember. Because when you're trying to make order of a whole sea of facts that you've got, if you've got an idea about how to structure something, it's like you're in the middle of the ocean holding onto a piece of driftwood, waiting for rescue. And then basically the driftwood gets taken away from you. And then you're just back in the ocean floating around hopelessly. But the reality is because Dennis Richardson couldn't remember that, I could not make that up and just go, oh, well, I'll just say he was at his desk. You can't do that. So I had to completely abandon that idea and find a different way of opening that chapter. And that that's both a joy of non-fiction versus fiction or journalism versus fiction, it imposes a structure because you can only work with the facts that you've got, but then that obviously can be kind of crippling because you can only work with the facts that you've got. 
journalism is littered with examples of people who decided not to let the facts get in the way of a good story. <laughs> yes. That idea, you know, I can see the beguiling thing about it. You know, what you're saying is absolutely true, but funnily enough, a story... And telling a good story is an agenda in and of itself. It's not a partisan political agenda, but it is a kind of predetermined outcome that you're working towards. That's so true. It's it's a form of bias, actually, really, and it's in an, it's a bias that's inherent to journalism. A way that this manifests, and I think it's it's something I've been thinking a lot about because I think it actually is contributing to mental health issues. Journalism seizes on the aberration. Um, that's the nature of the news. The nature of the news is a hundred helicopters fly safely today. The one that crashes is the one that makes the news. It's important that we um, investigate and report that, be- like because like a coroner. What you're checking is, is there a reason that helicopter crashed that could mean there are going to be more helicopter crashes? There's there's faulty pilot training. There's um, a part that's coming out that there's more helicopters that have it. So so it is important to have a look at that aberration. But the end result of that, if you overemphasize it, is it makes people fearful of something they don't really need to be fearful of because it's not a representation of the real world. So the reality is. When you see things on the news, what you need to say to yourself to avoid becoming anxious is, what I'm seeing here is the least likely thing to happen to me. That's the very reason it's made the news, because it is the least likely thing to happen. I am curious again, and I thought it a lot reading this book, about the way in which we're beguiled by stories and turning things into stories, and the conventions of storytelling and narrative aren't always a neat overlay with real life. Is there a different kind of story you find yourself wanting to tell now that you're not in the business of nightly news storytelling? The the older I get, the more I'm interested in the nuance of stories and the complexity of stories and the fact that, as you say, so often things aren't clear. So people who we think are heroic often, you know, they might not be that heroic because they're human beings or people that we think are evil aren't all bad. They might have some good aspects to them. And so the more nuanced a story is and the more complex it is and the more it captures all of that, the more engaging I personally find it. Um, But I think because of the polarisation of things, you often tend to get stories that um, are on one track or another, like this is all good or this is all bad. And I personally find that kind of boring. Doing 11, 12 years in a job like the 730 job, you must have had to actively work not to have a sense of your base, not to have a sense of kind of the expectations of the show and people's preconceptions of what the role of flagship current affairs on the ABC is. How much is that awareness of audience unhelpful to a storyteller? You have to have audience in mind and both out of mind. So for me, how I approached that job and, and how I think journalists generally should approach their job is thinking, I'm here and it's not about me. It's not about my opinion. It's not about what I think about this. It's about people at home and the broader public. And about it's about the average fair-minded person out there in the community and what they might like asked of this person in this position of power. Because that was the nature of my job there was that I was often having to challenge people in positions of power. And so I would be thinking of the audience in that sense, but the point at which I would not think about the audience is how is the audience going to react to this? 
And I think the the answer to that is, and it was kind of some advice actually that my grandmother gave me when when I was a kid, which is, it's none of your business what anybody thinks of you. So I used to say to her, well, what did Mrs. So-and-so say about my blah, blah? And she'd say, well, it's none of your business what anybody thinks of you. And I think that's actually quite good advice in life. It's it's not really any of my business if people think that I'm an awesome journo or if people think I'm absolute crap. You have to go about your job and about you know whatever it is that you do with, I think, a strong sense yourself of this is what I believe my values are, this is what how I believe in doing the job, and then you have to go from there. Sometimes people might like it and it might be popular. Sometimes people might not like it and it might be unpopular. But there's only one way to do it and it's the way that is having integrity to your own values. I can't let your confessed desire to one day write a novel uh, go by the wayside uh, while we're here. There's a precedent, an established precedent of journalists who turn their eye to fiction. What kind of fiction would you write if you were writing a novel? Um, Look, I... I would suspect what I would end up writing, you never really know until you sit down, I suspect I would end up writing something that would be heavily drawn from reality because what I've realised, so I have had a stab at writing a novel, I've got about 40,000 words sitting in a drawer which will never see the light of day but hopefully there'll be things I can pick out of it because I think what you learn when you do writing for a living is often your first drafts of things bear no relationship or, or limited relationship to what you actually end up with at the end of the day. But it's like, I view it as like you need to assemble something. It's like a building where you're building the building and you have scaffolding on it. And at a certain point, you take the scaffolding off. So I'll come back to a novel in a second, but just to illustrate that point, when I was writing my book, Any Ordinary Day, it had this opening that was there for a really long time. Um, you know, the whole book was kind of done and I was working on just the my edit before I sent it off to the publisher. And I just, there was just something kind of not right with it, but I really liked the anecdote that I was opening the book with. And I ended up deciding, you know what, I think this anecdote, while it's good, is kind of tangential to the ultimate theme and the question that the book's asking. And so in the end, the original opening, say, 2,000 words of any ordinary day did not make it into the book. But I needed it there for the entire process of the writing because I had to have something that was enabling me to move forward. And so, say, to go back to the novel, this novel that's sitting in my top drawer, um, already when I look at it, I go, "Mm, it's not mature enough. Those characters are too one-dimensional. But I like that hint of an idea or I like that description. So I think because my tools in life are observation, thinking deeply about why people do things and motives. It'll be some kind, I don't think I'd be reaching, say, for fantasy or something kind of elaborately comical like, say, Steve Toltz's work. I think it'll be more kind of small. And by that, I don't mean small as in, you know, in a derogatory sense. I mean, everyday kind of themes around families, relationships, um, everyday life and that kind of thing. I I would guess I'll land somewhere in that space. I'm curious about whether you feel more exposed personally in writing fiction than you do in in writing journalism. 
Yep. And part of it for me would be the fear of that everyone would be looking to go, oh, well, you know, look at all these accolades for journalism. Finally, sales has done something completely crap and now we can all beat the living <laughs> shit out of it. So there'll be that, which I think I will have to just put aside, you know, that fear, right? Because you just have to, if you want to do something, you can't be thinking about the ultimate reaction or the ultimate, will you be any good at it? If I write a novel and it's completely hopeless, that's fine. But the inner eight-year-old in me still wants to have a stab at writing the novel. Um, so I think I've just got to be a bit liberated, you know, from all of that sense of, you know, will it will it be any good? Will I actually be able to do it? I think sometimes the mistake that journalists make is thinking that because they can write nonfiction that they will be able to write fiction. And it's actually a drastically, I think that's like thinking I can play the piano, so therefore I'll be able to play the cello. Some of the tools that you have in being able to play the piano are going to help you if you're learning a new instrument, but it's still a new instrument. Do you think you're going to take the time on the novel? What's your creative process? Are you disciplined? Are you just going to be like, I'm going to chip away and keep writing? I'm a bit torn because... I've also got a non, another non-fiction book that I've done a fair bit of work on that I'm just not sure which which project I should go down. I mean, I keep getting worried I'm going to just run out of time to write novels because there's always non-fiction things catching my eye. And then the other thing I'm trying to do is since I'm still busy, but I'm not as busy as I used to be when I was tied to the daily news cycle and your life could be thrown into disarray. So I'm trying much harder to do more music practice, more piano practice, more cello practice, because I think that that's really healthy for me. And again, I just, I, I, I've, it's been such an important part of my life and I don't want to let that slide. And there's been times where when I've been so busy doing 7.30, I'll sit down to play the piano and I can still sight read, but I'll think, there's a day, if, I don't, if I'm not careful, one day I might sit down here and I might not be able to do this anymore. And that would be really a heartbreaking day. Um, and so I just want to have more balance in that I'm not just all work and looking after the boys, which is pretty much what it's been for the past decade. So um, I, I, I do want to do some writing, but I also want to do an hour of cello practice every day. So, you know, I need, do you know anyone that does cloning? <laughs> I uh, I I do, and they do specialise in uh, cellist cloning. So <laughs> I think we'll Perfect. be fine. It's all about Good. the forearms if you're cloning a cellist. Absolutely, so. yeah, that would be great. So yeah, if I could just have a few, I mean, probably a couple of extra lease sales would be fantastic. Fine, I think uh, I think the demand will be out there. <laughs> That's the sound of one of Lee's clones practicing the cello. The real Lee's new book is called Storytellers. Questions, answers, and the craft of journalism. It's out now. As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. And before we go, as ever, I wanted to let you know what I've been reading this week. In the past couple of weeks, they've just brought out a new edition of Gary Dish's latest crime novel, Day's End. It's as good an excuse as any to bring it to your attention if you haven't read it before. It is the fourth in a series about Constable Paul Hirsch Hirschhausen. They're set in the back blocks of South Australia's Wheatbelt. 
start the series with Bitter Wash Road and you've got a very good time ahead of you. And I'm absolutely loving Laurie Moore's new novel. It's her first in 15 years and it's called I Am Homeless If This Is Not My Home. She's so bloody good to read. It's this tiny little book and packed with big and weird ideas. I've only just started, but it's a ghost story set across centuries. And the blurb includes the sentence, a therapy clown and an assassin, both presumed dead, but perhaps not dead at all. Tell me you can resist that. I know I couldn't. You can find these books and all the others we mentioned at your favourite local independent bookstore. Or if you want to listen to them, you can head to the Read This Reading Room on Apple Books. That's at apple.co slash read this. There's a link in our show notes. That's it for this week's show. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends and rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps us a lot. Next week on Read This, it's one for people like Lee Sales, lovers of advice columns. I'm joined by my favourite agony aunt, Daniel M. Lavery. Danny wrote Slate's famous Dear Prudence column for years, and in next week's episode, he shares what he's learned about people from unpacking their problems. I think a a big factor in something that people look for in advice columnists is, am I all right? Am I on the right path? Is it okay that I feel this way or have done something that makes sense to me? I like getting absolution from people too. Read This is produced by Clara Ames and edited by Sarah McVie. Original compositions by Zoltan Fetcher and mixing by Travis Evans. Thanks for listening. See you next week.